You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tenakato Katoa, Ko Liam Henson Toku Ingoa. No mai, Heidi mai, Kita Waya Motenera. Kia ora, and welcome to The Wire for Ramade Friday. I'm your host, Liam, taking you through The Wire for the 22nd of September. Our producer, David Williams, is back in the studio today. How are you going today, David? Kia ora, kia ora. Nice to be back. Jolly good. Coming up on The Wire today, I am chatting to Pippa Coombe on our regular city counselling segment. We are talking about her final report of this council term and the upcoming local elections. I've also had a chat with Steve Thomas from Arts on Tour NZ about the arts funding in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And finally, I have had a chat with University of Canterbury's Michelle LaRue about her research using satellites to understand Wendell seal population. I spoke to Re- Rebecca Graham from Parents of Vision Impaired about food insecurity amongst our country's poorest people. I'm all, I also spoke to Corinne Sales from Victoria University about the Ukrainian language. Language Sounds good. Hea we would love to hear your thoughts on any of these places, so please get in touch. You can get in touch with us on 5395 through the text machine or give us a call in studio on 309-3879. Also, after the show, Kawe e wareware i ahe anakoto, te whakanangaki ene korero ano ahe pakeere roki roki ma ranga i te pe, tukutuki o irirangi poho, me haere ki 95BFM irakati.com. You can catch all of these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website, 95BFM.com. Now, tell me about your father. City Councilling on 95BFM, our weekly chat with the good people of Auckland Council. As we are in the midst of local election voting, councillors are beginning to wrap up their terms with their final reports. Pippa Coombe, the councillor for Waitamata and Gulf, has recently released her own report on the achievements that she's made and the issues that she's encountered over the past three years. As a part of our fortnightly chat on city councilling, we had a corredo about the report and what she's looking to do if re-elected. We also spoke more broadly about we also spoke more broad, broadly about the local elections as well as ongoing climate strikes happening around the country today. First, she ran through some of the highlights of her report. Yeah, it's been a bit of a reflection on the last three years, and I'd like to think that I've made a very positive contribution to the governing body of Auckland Council. I came on to be kind of constructive and to get things done, and um, it's been a real honour to have been the Deputy Chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee under Richard Hill, the Chair, And on that committee, there's a whole lot of stuff that has happened. Um, Significantly, we've approved um, Tatariki Atafari, Auckland's climate plan. Um, With the leadership of the Mayor, we've got a climate action targeted rate, which has locked in almost a billion dollars for climate action over the next 10 years. Um, For the first time, Auckland's got a water strategy and um, a significant decision that we made um, just um, last month was to sign off Auckland's Transport Emissions Reduction Pathway, which is going to be a very significant piece of work that we need to take forward next term if we're going to reduce our transport emissions by 64% by 2030, which is very topical given today there's a, 
a climate strike, um, really. How has this term been different from your previous ones? Well, it is my first term as a councillor. So previously I was the local board chair and before that the deputy chair of the Waitamata local board. So coming from a local board, you, you have a good understanding of how Auckland Council works and how to progress um, decisions, but it's quite a different role. Um, local boards are dealing with um, local um, issues and running local facilities, whereas on the governing body, you've got much more of a, a, a regional role and um, you also, importantly, have responsible for setting the rates and how everything is funded. What changes would you be advocating for if you do get another term? Well, I think there's a lot that we dis- we need to progress. So I think under Mayor Phil Goff, you know, the, he's shown really fantastic leadership when it comes to climate action, but we've really got to make huge, bold steps forward, um, and that is going to be implementing the Transport Emission Reduction Plan, or the, the pathway, um, that is going to be a big one and a, and a focus that you know of mine. And then there's lots of work that's happening with the environment. Um, I'm particularly made a priority the restoration of the Hauraki Golf because I'm also co-chair of the Hauraki Golf. So we're starting to see improvements. Um, you know, the golf is in a really um, degraded state, but you know things like marine protection are happening and. Um, you know, there's a lot of great mahi going on right around the Gulf, and I'm really keen to progress that work. You mentioned earlier the climate strikes that are currently happening around the country, including in Tamaki Makoto. Is there anyone, any council representatives that are attending the protests and speaking to what people are demanding? Well, I know my City Vision colleagues will be there for sure. Um, where that's central to our, our our policies is climate action and climate justice, and that's a coalition of Labour Greens and community independents like me, so that's who I stand with, and you'll be seeing them very strongly um, at the strike. Um, and, yeah, I mean, like all of those examples I gave of the action that we're taking, I mean, I think Council's listening, and um, we did declare a climate emergency in 2019, so we have to follow through with that. Um, and... You know, there are some big changes we need to make, but I think we're on the right, on the, taking the right approach. A large part of the strike is made up of high school students and teenagers who are incredibly, incredibly worried about their own future living on this planet and making sure that they aren't going to be incredibly negatively affected by the effects of climate change. Is the council's current climate decisions being made in conversation with these sorts of groups of young people? Well, that's having the voices of Rangitahi Tamariki in our decision-making is really important, and they, were, they very much were part of developing Te Tauraki Atafari, Auckland's climate plan, and we've also got a um, youth advisory panel, and they have been involved in putting into council strategies and plans at an early early stage. So I think there's, there's a real wish to, to hear more diverse voices and particularly from young people and you can see kind of practical examples of that but you know with council there's always more that can be done and um, something that we need to to you know keep working at next term. Talking more generally about the upcoming local elections now, a big part of the reason that some people might find voting difficult is because of the abundance of choices that they have that kind of overwhelms them when they're looking at their local and regional council choices. How do you recommend that people go about understanding the policies of their local councillors? Well, there's, there's 
It is quite difficult, um, and you know, going on slogans alone and just looking at people's pictures on the hoardings can can really not give you very much information. Um, so I do recommend going to the online sites now that have actual policies of candidates, and you can compare them. So, for example, there's Vote Auckland, which is the Auckland Council website. There's Policy.nz, which is um, a spin-off, and then. And that's where candidates can actually share their own policies, so that's in their words. And then there's other organisations, of course, like Generation Zero, who've actually graded um, candidates from the information they've supplied. So, you know, there's a lot more resources now um, to actually go and do a deep dive in what candidates stand for. How can voters be confident that the candidates that they are voting for and looking at will be able to back up their policies and words with actions? Well, that's all part of, I guess, um, decision-making around an election and, and you know, looking at candidates, their track record, what have they said previously, what, are, what do they say on social media. I mean, a, a real concern is that we have a group of candidates standing they call themselves Rock the Vote, but they are actually um, standing, um, they're actually Voices for Freedom candidates. So, um, but you wouldn't know that from if you just saw their slogans. And they're actually doing a lot of illegal signage as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be tricky for voters, you know, wondering what's going on. And you really need to, you know, check, check candidates out closely can throw in just you know how to vote that you know there's a, a lot more places now it's not just about posting it's just dropping off is kind of I think the key message because posting gets a bit confusing because there's so few post boxes but you know there's all these vote boxes at libraries and countdown and transport hubs that was city councillor Pippa Coombe chatting about her recent term as a councillor and the upcoming local elections. Have you tried mindfulness? Try mindfulness. City Councilling on 95BFM. Speaking of exciting things that are happening in Auckland, of course, we've got Laneway coming up and one of the most underrated acts that I think that are coming around are Yard Act. This is Dead Horse. You're on 95BFM. We'll be back with some more news after this. Of hope, this world's great nation are left as its humour. To be it through continued mockery, this crap pot country are full of cunts. Well, finally, after the last laugh, when dragged underwater by the weight of the tumour, it formed, and when it fell for the fear mongering of the National Front's new hairdo. Inhabitants of this once unstoppable isle when all of its exports are no longer in style. Are you seriously still trying to kid me that all culture will be just fine when all we've left is knobheads Morris dancing to Sham 69? <gasps> Go on the ragman or run around the maypole, hijack the sound and stake your claim to it. Every car played is a statement made and there's always a new scapegoat to blame for it. England, my heart bleeds, why do you abandon me? Yes, I abandoned you too, but we both know I wasn't the one lied to and I'm not scared of people who don't look like me, unlike you. Oh, 
of hope this once great nation had left was good music but we didn't nurture it instead choosing to ignore it yes we've been trapped by the same crowd that don't like it unless they've heard it before leaving me stuck flogging my progressive dead horse south of the border to the so-so souls and through and throughs and this and that and buttered bread and proud of it whose values flip whenever it fucking suits them and we're supposed to let it slide because the press has normalized Racism is something we should humour Yeah, the last bastion of hope This one straight nation had left us to converse In a manner that will pacify, divide and unite the room But no one's talking Rational thought has been forced into submission By the medium through which all of our information is now consumed Yes, fake news It's fake news, mate And it's hideous, it's abound by its own stupidity It does not realise it has already sentenced itself completely to death So bold it is, and it's hideous, it's abound by its own stupidity It does not realise it has already sentenced itself completely to death Happy Road. For nationwide delivery, visit hempstore.co.nz or call 0800 Hempstore. For the best in hemp, you gotta keep it green. The hemp store on K Road is what you need. One minute to the hour. Back in New Zealand for the first time in four years, Jordan Rakai is celebrating the release of his superb new album, What We, we Call Life. If you want to see him playing live at the power station, then just find your B-card, go on, find it right now, and then come back and stay tuned to 95 BFM Drive all this week for your chance to win tickets. Jordan Rakai, Friday, January 20th at the power station. Tickets from livenation.co.nz. With a revolving cast of BFM's favourite long-serving selectors, it's the Gang of Four. With Renee Jones, Pat Fife, Phil Armstrong and The Professor. Gang of Four. Tonight, 7 to 9pm on 95BFM. A claim is often made that hunger is due to poor life choices. Just before the break was the track Dead Horse by Yard Act. Food insecurity impacts thousands of New Zealand families every week. 
However, the myth that people aren't making the right life choices still exists. I spoke to Rebecca Graham from Parents of Vision Impaired about the issue. Poverty, where people are going without enough food because they don't have enough money or resources to buy food, I would say very much that that's not about poor life choices. That's about people in our society who are deliberately under-resourced. Why do you think this myth still abounds? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. And it's a little controversial, but I think the wealthier group, it's to our benefit that we can blame people for their poverty because then it lets us off the hook for having to change anything. And particularly if you are part of a wealthier group in New Zealand, if you own land, for example, that puts you in a wealthy group. We don't like to admit that to ourselves. We don't like to admit that some of us are wealthier and we certainly don't like to think that we're responsible for other people's poverty. So it's a nice story in a way that we tell ourselves so that we don't have to feel guilty that other people don't have enough. So it's sort of like blaming people for their own poverty means that we don't have to look at ourselves and the benefits we get and that maybe we need to do things a little differently. Do you think it's an example of shifting societal responsibilities onto individuals rather than the problems of societies themselves? Yeah, and we do love that individual narrative, you know. We do like to think that our success and our wealth is a result of our own personal hard work. And often it is, but it's really hard to see some of those bigger structural things that make it easier for us to do well. And others, we don't necessarily see the barriers that other people face when they're working hard and they don't get quite the same rewards. What are some of the problems causing this food insecurity? A big thing in New Zealand is poverty, and that is multifaceted. Welfare is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Back in the 90s, when we had the mother of all budgets, there was a deliberate decision by the government of the day to slash benefits to less than 20% of what was needed to live on. And that was a very intentional decision in order to reduce the welfare spend at the time. And benefits have never recovered in terms of uh, actual income that comes in and being able to afford to live. Uh, so that's a huge part of, of what happens when you have 20% less than what you need to meet your very basic needs. It's going to drive food bank use. It's going to drive hunger. It's going to drive some of these less socially acceptable ways of sourcing food. Uh, on top of that, and alongside it, governments underfunded state housing and the various things that happen in that space. But essentially, uh, we don't have enough affordable, warm, dry housing, and that drives a bunch of stuff when a huge percentage of your income is going on rent. It doesn't leave enough money for food, and that's driving some of the stuff as well. And then sort of in there you have now what is called the working poor, where people have jobs, but the income they're getting from their jobs isn't sufficient to meet basic living costs. And again, that's driving an increase in food bank use, it's driving an increase in creative means, and it's also driving people going hungry because there just isn't enough money to buy enough food for everyone in the household. What do you think are some of the short and long-term solutions to these problems? So short-term are things that alleviate hunger and access to food right now, and long-term are some of those policy actions that we can do. In terms of the short-term, we could very easily provide people with additional money, additional resourcing. 
We could also shift from a food bank charity model into a free store model where we just give people unfettered access to donated food. That's a model that works really well, but here in New Zealand we still have a charity model where people act as gatekeepers to make sure that only the right people get donated food. And, and there's a lot that's problematic with that, and we could just move straight away to unfettered access to donated food. In terms of long term, a number of things we can do and some we are doing, so we're increasing the number of state housing, that's a big one. The Welfare Expert Advisory Group made a number of recommendations. They had 42 main recommendations, most of which hasn't been implemented. So we could implement those across the board right now, and that would make a huge difference long term, and probably in the short term as well. And that includes simple things like, for example, disability allowances, making them less bureaucratic and administrative, tripling the child disability allowance, things like that we could do very quickly and it would make a huge difference. I know the government is doing some things, but I think there's a lot more that we could be bold and transformative with. That was that was Rebecca Graham from Parents of Vision Impaired talking about food insecurity in some of our country's poorest we have another track, it's Don't Go Back by Marlon Williams. One in the morning when the mood started shifting All the night moves coming out Conversation you could do without your border thing She's got her finger in her mouth And you know what that's about Don't have to tell you what you already know If you got something to uphold You don't let the devil leave you low You're dynamite And I know you think you might But don't leave yourself tonight Don't go back to the party, everybody Thinks they know Don't go back to the party, no 
back to the party. Don't go back to the party, no. Don't go back to the party. Don't go back to the party, no. Classic journal question as well. Can I have a jaw? The Wire. Various arts groups from throughout New Zealand have recently had their funding cut back by Creative NZ in the midst of the government entity's extension of their Kahikatea scheme. This includes the Shakespeare Globe Theatre and artist residency at the home of Colin McKeon and the Arts on Tour NZ Trust. The scheme, has, the scheme has brought about important new talent for funding, but the letting go of groups who have received funding in the past has risen questions about the expansion of the funds. To learn more, I had a chat to Steve Thomas, the Artistic Director of Arts on Tour, about how they are planning to adapt without the funding. He first explained what his organisation does. Arts on Tour NZ is based in Christchurch, and it is an agency of um, linking top level artists with uh, rural and provincial and regional centres. We work with artists to allow them to travel through the most uh, unusual and unique venues in this country and we cover the costs through our grant from Creative New Zealand for their accommodation and their transport and their promotional materials and their social media promotions and uh, their per diems, their daily out-of-pocket expenses. Um, so we use that money to make them comfortable so that they can do the best show uh, possible. Uh, yeah. How long have you been funded by Creative New Zealand? Well, we were in on the... We were one of the first people into the Kahikatea stream uh, of uh, funding, which was a three-year rollover. Um, there's a, a slightly higher level called the Totara scheme, which is, a, I think, a five-year for maybe larger organisations. Uh, we are only two people in the, in the organisation, and we've been in there since the inception. It could be 10, 15 years, I don't know. We've been running for 27 years uh, as a trust, as a, as a charitable trust, uh, been with Creative New Zealand all the way. They've, they've um, supported and assisted us to grow. Why do you think that Creative New Zealand cut your funding recently? They probably have uh, higher priorities uh, in terms of uh, maybe Tangata Whenua, maybe in terms of treaty arrangements and acknowledgements thereof. Um, I know the four, there were 62 um, organisations in, in the Kahikatea scheme. Four of them were dropped and four new ones were in, in, invited and included. Uh, and for the four new ones are like um, the Kiamo Festival, uh, of, of Maori work, the um, Tairafati Festival in Gisborne, um, Jim Moriarty's work in prisons and with, um, you know, kind of the, the disadvantage through the arts, and that's they're all wonderful, wonderful things. Um, so clearly, there's there's a priority in terms of um, new uh, features. And while while we've been, you know, a, a very effective and, and, and powerful uh, agency. Um, we will continue on, but uh, just not on the Kahikatea scheme. So are you still eligible for certain kinds of funding from Creative New Zealand? Yes, we would be. Uh, they would wish to support us in this transition. 
um, and they will, uh, I think, have indicated that we are eligible to apply on an annual basis. So we'll be applying every year rather than having a, the certainty of a three-year contract that allows us to go, OK, we can seriously plan ahead here. Um, for example, next year we have 259 uh, bookings for 10 tours uh, uh, in 74 different community uh, organisations um, from uh, Stewart Island to Whangaroa. Um, we've got all that schedule and and pay for, uh, and you know hopefully they're going to be able to support it. Otherwise, the artists don't get any work. The communities in rural and regional places don't get an opportunity to see some fabulous work, and um, it would be a great loss because their act actually you know requires them to. It requires the Arts Council and Creative New Zealand to distribute um, the arts for the benefit of all New Zealanders. Do you think that this is a part of a wider issue with the arts being underfunded in New Zealand? Well, of course it is. The arts has traditionally been underfunded um, and funded through the Lotteries Board, which, um, you know, just recently the government is starting to think, "Mm, probably not not a good idea to have uh, the arts funded by... uh, the hopes and wishes and dreams of uh, the people who can least afford it um, and who actually probably don't go to the shows or participate in the arts anyway. Um, So I think lotteries are possibly going to be a thing of the past in terms of the funding stream. You know, the arts has got to be funded somehow and the Ministry of Arts and Culture will fund it at least in part through uh, its vote or money that they collect from taxes. But primarily, when people have complained about the arts being a waste of taxpayers' money, it it actually hasn't been, because it's primarily, if it's a waste of anybody's money, it's uh, poor buggers who've tried to buy a lotto ticket. Will Arts on Tour be able to go ahead without consistent Creative New Zealand funding, without reliable Creative New Zealand funding? Well, we're just dealing with that now, because we only heard on Monday last... um, but I think, you know, we are uh, we have too much support out there in, in uh, the community. You know, we're also small and totally... Um, we have a lot of support out there in small-town New Zealand. Um, and we are also a small and, and cost-effective agency. So we're not... We, we are, as I said, we only have two people with, you know, pretty low cost. Uh, we, you know... We, 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 we can survive for certain. Well, arts funding, uh, I think, you know, it, 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 it does require um, a greater input from government. Uh, there's no doubt. I think the vote arts has to be... Uh, when you knew that Helen Clark as prime minister had taken over the arts portfolio, you knew it was going to get uh, some uh, emphasis and some, some uh, special, I suppose, treatment and it did um, and then Jacinda Ardern took over the arts portfolio I can't say it, it really saw a lot of um, you know input in the way that Helen Clark did but once the Prime Minister takes over that that interest people do sit up uh, Grant Robertson is a associate member of the uh, Ministry of Culture and Heritage um, Carmel Cipolloni is the minister um, we we are needing more votes. There's no doubt about it.
Does voting in local elections make a difference for supporting the arts in specific regions? Politics inevitably uh, comes into play uh, if, if people have got an awareness of the benefits of the arts in terms of health and well-being. And I mean, after all, we've been through two or three years of, of significant pressure on communities and on health, people's health. Um, there's nothing like, you know, a, 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 an uplifting experience, whether it's whatever people like, social, you know, there's sort of there's orchestra music, classical music, comedy, um, something to touch your soul. Uh, why not? That's really uh, the most beneficial of, um, of, of investments. That was Steve Thomas from Arts on Tour NZ. We'll be back after this quick break. What's a seven-letter word for Street Fighter? No idea. Don't you know anything? I know that tonight at Ponsonby Social Club, there's... Soul Bossa Duo live in the courtyard, followed by DJs Bobby Brazuka and Adam Fuhr. And tomorrow... Filthy Junk Traders live, followed by DJs V and TDK. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. Ponsonby Social Club. All right, spot time, I reckon. Got any utensils? We'll sacrifice some, eh? Uh, we're going to need a vessel to oscill the last of the spark from <laughs> duet. Mm. <clears throat> yes, yeah, spot song! Whoa, no, I, I mean the bear spot, you know? Amazing, independent, NZ bear. Ah, oh, the legal buzz, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> The 95 BFM Drive Show, a fully legal, three-hour psychedelic playground of japes, jive and jams. 4 to 7 p.m. every weekday, only on 95 BFM. Thanks to the beer spot, your tappy place. Beamage. Babe, have you thought more about what you want for your birthday? I already said. I know, I know. I Do just... you need the link? Nah, it's just, you know, you already have a 95 BFM tote, 95 BFM stubbies, three 95 BFM shirts. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I asked for the hat. 95 BFM merch is now at the University of Auckland campus store. 95 BFM hats, hoodies, t-shirts, totes and more. Get yours now from the campus store or online at 95bfm.com slash merch. Discount with your B card. Be waiting at the campus store in the quad. Ukrainian language and culture is seeing a renaissance in the face of Russian aggression. I spoke to Victoria of University, Victoria University of Wellington Applied Linguistics Professor Corin Seals about the steps Ukrainians are taking to embrace their own national identity. What are some of the main differences between Ukrainian and Russian? There's a shared history, but also a difference in history linguistically between the Ukrainian and Russian languages. And you get actually more similarities between them if you're in eastern Ukraine. They're actually quite different if you're in western Ukraine. And that's the same like any dialects in any country, you know, that there's changes depending on where you are. When we talk about differences between them, there are vocabulary differences. There are pronunciation differences. There are sentence structure differences. For example, if we look at kind of on a continuum, say, you know, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, if we look at that and how people say thank you, then in Russia, it's спасибо. In Ukraine, it's дякую. And in Poland, it's дзякуя. So you can see дзякуя is a lot closer to дзякуя than it is to спасибо. So there's 
a lot of influence from Polish in Ukrainian and still its own marked individual language and has been its own individual language and noted as such by linguists dating back to approximately the 10th century and modern Ukraine dating back being its own language to approximately the 17th century, which is the same time period that we can date back modern French to. A lot of people speak Ukrainian and Russian in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, how are the languages traditionally spread out across the country? You get a lot of people currently who who speak Russian in eastern Ukraine. You get a lot of people who speak both in the center, and this is on a normal, everyday basis. And you get a lot of people who speak more Ukrainian in the West. And a lot of that has to do with the history of Russification that was part of the Soviet Empire. The Soviet Union, when it took on a lot of what is now modern Ukraine, when it took that, they enforced Russification policies and Ukrainian language was not allowed to be spoken. And a lot of Ukrainian language speakers spoke it at home, underground sort of thing. So because of that, the areas that were closer to Russia geographically got hit harder by Russification. And there was a replacement of languages for families and individuals where Ukrainian was replaced with Russian. Since 1991 in Ukrainian independence, there's been a big effort and movement to revitalize the Ukrainian language across the country. And what that's mean in reality is that you now have a whole lot of people who speak both languages in the country. And that's a a reflection of history as well as current identity and language practices. How much has the war in Ukraine contributed to the growth or spike almost of the Ukrainian language in the Ukrainian culture? So it's the current war in Ukraine from Russia is it's had a major contributing factor on the number of people who have done what is called changing their mother tongue. So this is the way that Ukrainians describe it. Ukrainians, which sometimes I'll say we because that's my family as well, we have been part of this movement of change your mother tongue and that's how it's described. And it is an alignment with a Ukrainian national identity. And um, there are a couple of parts to this. One part is that because of the ongoing war, and keep in mind that the mass infiltration of Russian troops into Ukraine, it happened, the huge amount of it happened recently, but Russia has occupied Ukraine territory illegally since 2014, end of 2013, beginning of 2014, and there's been nonstop fighting since then. So the this Change Your Mother Tongue movement really happened at that time initially, and then now it's come back with even stronger force as a result of this heavy artillery invasion across the country. What has happened is Ukrainians have been asked to think again about what does it mean to be Ukrainian, especially since the Russian government and Putin like to say there's no such thing as Ukrainians. So you imagine if you're told there's no such thing as you, <laughs> you, you sit for a minute and go, okay, what does it mean to be me then? And so there's been this revisiting of what does it mean to be Ukrainian. There's been this uptake of more of a national identity. So Ukrainians before 2013, 2014, before Euromaidan, they used to identify about half regionally as being the primary most important identity and half nationally. After Maidan, it became 75% of people identified nationally as being the most important. And part of that national identification has been connected with 
Ukrainian as the national language. So there's been this big movement where people are doing what they describe as um, shifting their consciousness to be more of a national consciousness. So I've had a lot of people I've worked with who say they're switching. They want to change the language that they that they think in, that they dream in, to be Ukrainian, to align more with what it means for them to be Ukrainian. Is there an opposite movement to kind of shred their Russian influence? A way that helps me think of this is in my field, we talk about it as positive identity practices when you're aligning with something and negative identity practices when you're trying to push away from something. And so what I talked about before was positive. But yes, there are also negative ones. That also is a bit tricky for people, though, because when you've got people who have family, you know, parents, grandparents who are still living in eastern Ukraine, who still speak Russian as a primary language, then there's still that some association with Russian language that people cannot shed completely because of wanting to maintain contact. But it has become something where a lot of Ukrainians have looked at, okay, so if we are individually or a collective also making a conscious effort linguistically to change to Ukrainian, but we cannot entirely shed the Russian language because we alienate too many people we don't want to alienate, then um, what else can we do? So there's been a big movement to push away from Russian literature, any Russian arts like the, the Moscow Ballet, the Bolshoi Ballet, and to push away from a lot of this idea, great Russian arts and great Russian literature. And so Ukrainians have really been working on pushing that away because of not wanting people to to join together the ideas of this artistic greatness with Russia with the current government, right? So it's this idea of um, let's try to separate them. So you can talk about like individual authors, but don't equate them to anything of Russian greatness. So let's push away from that instead and push away from those ideas. So there's a lot of distancing from that. And a lot of uh, Ukrainians have like stopped reading Russian literature, have stopped listening to Russian music, all in favor of uh, Ukrainians instead, which is equally as good. Putin and the Russian media have seen some very bold statements saying that Ukraine isn't a real country and the Ukrainians aren't real and that it was created out of the USSR. How valid is this claim? Oh, it's so not valid. That's one of the first things you need to successfully establish a genocide is to deny the existence of a people. And so it's very, um, that's crucial for Putin's mission than in what he's doing and what the Russian uh, military are doing going against and essentially leading this genocide against against Ukrainian people. And so that whole discourse over it's not a real country and all that, it's more that it feeds into their their goals currently. Though I do believe he believes that somewhat. I think mean, he does believe that it's true that Ukraine's not a real country, which is fascinating in a very twisted way because it when you've got an entire nation of people who identify with their country that has been internationally recognized as a country and has a long-standing history going back to the 10th century <laughs> you know that's that's quite an interesting um way to fool yourself with rewriting history that was victoria university of wellington's applied linguistics professor called 
Corinne Seals talking about the renaissance of the Ukrainian language. Why should New Zealanders care so much about this? Because your children will curse you if you don't. The Wire. A years-long research project has recently concluded providing an understanding of the number of weddle seals in Antarctica. The project involves the usage of satellites which researchers made public and asked volunteers to count the number of seals in the continent. Continent. In their final report of the findings, researchers discovered that the number of seals was much lower than initially thought. I had a chat with Dr. Michelle LaRue, an associate professor at Gateway Antarctica at the University of Canterbury, about the research. She started by explaining its details. Our research on Weddell seals focused on the first ever population estimate, which was previously basically impossible to get. Um, and the way we went about this was using high-resolution satellite imagery and um, working with hundreds of thousands of citizen scientists. We were able to come up with that first ever estimate. And what that showed is that there are far fewer Weddell seals in the world than we previously thought. Why was this so difficult in the past? Yeah, so um, Antarctica is a pretty difficult place to do research. Um, and getting into the places where these seals exist, which is right next to the continent on sea ice, is a really difficult thing to do. And so the ability to see them from space completely transformed our ability to like remotely get into those places. And so previously it wouldn't have been possible, but now we can because of satellite imagery. How exactly were the satellites used? Was it used through photography or some other form of understanding the population? Yeah, so the satellite images are optical, so it's just visual observation, um, you know, color imagery that you can literally just look at like you would an image. Um, and so what we asked our citizen scientists to do was to kind of zoom in um, on the places where we thought there might be seals and tell us, first of all, whether or not they saw them. And then secondarily, if they did see them, um, be able to tag them on the image and tell us um, how many there are. What sort of teams did you work with for this research? Yeah, so the team that um, I put together in the United States uh, was comprised of a couple um, experts on sea ice, Weddell seals, and quantitative ecology. And then we requested help from uh, what we would call the crowd, so volunteers of people from all over the world to log online and help us look at these images and find seals for us. So that was kind of like a very large community project. It was a very large community project. I had no idea we were going to get that many people um, excited and involved, um, and it completely blew me away. It was it was really fun to see the number of people who were like logging in and asking questions and trying to help us figure out where the seals were. What were the exact number of people that were taking part? Uh, so I think we ended up with about three hundred and twenty thousand uh, citizen scientists over the course of I mean it was over the course of a couple of years uh, who were involved and yeah it completely blew me away um, I, I just couldn't believe that that many people were interested in seals. And was it completely voluntary? Yeah, it was completely voluntary. So what we did is um, a couple of different press releases to uh, promote the research and to make sure people knew that we were looking for assistance. Um, and yeah, people could log in at their leisure when they felt like it. You know, if they're kind of sitting down and relaxing in the evening and wanted to just hop online for a few minutes here and there. Um, I know some people really focused kind of consistently over the course of, you know, a couple of weeks to help us. Um, so really it was just at at, you know, everybody's disposal. Whenever they wanted to, they could log in and, and give us um, give us some help. So how has the current perception of the amount of Weddell seals around contrasted against previous conceptions of populations? 
Yeah, so previous estimates that we could find in the literature suggested that there were roughly 800,000 wet L seals or so. Um, and so we found this time that there were about 200,000 breeding female wet L seals. Um, so dramatically fewer than we had um, kind of originally anticipated. Um, but I want to be cautious in suggesting that that's an actual decline, because I don't necessarily think that's true. I think that um, there may be fewer, yes, but really what I would suggest is that our work is really more of the first population estimate, you know, by which we can use as a benchmark now moving forward rather than comparing to previous estimates. And the reason I say that is because those previous estimates were hampered by the fact that they couldn't get to the entire coastline in one go, right? It's really difficult to get to those places by ship or by air. Um, so anyway, I would just suggest that our work is probably the first ever baseline that we can use as a benchmark. Would the low population of seals be something to worry about? Um, we're not sure at this point because I'm not sure what's normal, right? This is the, the first time we've ever had this idea. So I think now what we need to do is monitor through time to see if things change. And so if we continue or if we, if we decline at all from that 200,000, say, over the next 10 years or so, then I would say that might be cause for concern, yeah. Is this a part of ongoing climate research about making sure that the Antarctic is kept afloat and safe, including the animals that inhabit it? Yeah, so the, the nice part about this research is it does contribute to um, like continued monitoring of the ecosystem, which we need to be doing anyway. Um, I wouldn't say that this was necessarily set out as a climate change project, just primarily because one of the things that we that's really interesting about what else seals is there's really only one spot that has long-term information about them. And so almost everywhere else where we discovered them was unknown. So we had, we kind of uncovered a lot of unknowns with this project. Um, so I think it kind of remains to be seen what the implications are of this research. Why are the seals so important to Antarctica's ecosystem? Weddell seals are really important for a couple of different reasons. Um, the first of which is they live on sea ice. And so obviously as the climate continues to change, we would anticipate that their homes, their habitat uh, could literally be, you know, gone from underneath their feet or underneath their flippers. Um, but secondly, um, they are a really interesting position in the food web in that they are both prey for things like uh, killer whales, um, but they're also predators of other fish like Antarctic toothfish. And Antarctic toothfish is a particular species that we fish for, even even um, from New Zealand, um, and it shows up on our plates as Chilean sea bass. Um, and so it's really important to understand how the seals are doing because we are quite literally competing with them for their food. What initially drew you to undertaking this research? Pure curiosity. <laughs> I was I was really uh, I was really interested in being able to look at the high resolution imagery and see these animals. It was it was a true discovery. It was something I wasn't planning on doing initially. Um, and I came upon a, a, one of these high resolution images, and I saw these seals on the ice, and and with a background in wildlife ecology and, um, you know, kind of some geospatial and mapping skills, I knew that I could put those two things together to really figure out what was going on with these seals. Um, and it took a long time to kind of put together a project and think about how to go about this efficiently and in a robust and in a scientific way, but we finally got it done. What are the next steps in understanding how the seals are living and their population? So the next steps at the moment are to look in a particular area through time. Um, so I'm not sure if any anyone has heard of the Ross Sea, but there's a, a, just south of New Zealand is one of the largest marine protected areas in the world, and that's in the Ross Sea. 
Um, and that happens also to be one of the areas where the most of the seals are living. And so what we're doing now is looking at these images over time and trying to figure out how the seals are, are doing over time in the entirety of the Ross Sea rather than just looking at one location. And so that'll give us that first glimpse into how their populations are doing. Are there any other research projects in this area that you're currently taking under? Yeah, so we can also use this imagery for other species as well beyond wet all seals. Um, and so I'm doing a research project on emperor penguins, looking at kind of the same thing, seeing how their populations are doing over time in the Ross Sea and around the rest of the continent. And we're looking at their populations from space as well. Um, and the same is true for Adelie penguins. We can actually see um, their colonies on land using high-resolution imagery. And so we're trying to build some new models to figure out how their populations are doing too. So are you still in the need for citizen journalists to take part in this research? Um, at the moment, we are kind of on hiatus. Uh, we're doing a lot of the analysis part um, at the moment. But the hope is in the next couple of years, we will possibly be asking for assistance once again to um, begin monitoring where we know the seals are currently living and see if that changes over time. And where can people go to stay updated on those topics? Ooh, um, so there's a project. Um, so uh, I guess in the, on the idea of citizen science, there's actually a project going on in the Arctic at the moment um, called Walrus from Space. So if you're interested in seeing what these images look like and being part of a community science effort, that's a really great place to go. Um, there's another one about albatross. Um, but as far as my research, um, I'm at the University of Canterbury, and so um, checking me out on that website would be great. And I also have my own website, um, drmichellelarue.com, where um, I keep up to date on some of my publications and some of the work that I'm doing. That was Michelle LaRue from the University of Canterbury chatting about her research analyzing seals in Antarctica. That was The Wire. Ko edite hotake katoa motene wiki, naite mehikia koto katoa, i korero maiki au motene da. And that is a wrap on the Friday Wire. Thank you to those who spoke with us today City Councillor Pippa Coombe, Steve Thomas from Arts on Tour New Zealand, and the University of Canterbury's Dr. Michelle LaRue. And thank you to Rebecca Graham from Parents of Vision Impaired and Corinne Sells from Victoria University of Wellington. And neida hoki te mehikia koto i fakaronga ana. Thank to Thank you to you for tuning in. If you miss anything, all of those interviews will be podcasted on 95bfm.com. Ka hokui mai moto i wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You are on 95BFM. was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.